when you walk into a newsroom with a scar on your face or your body, it's sexy. But when you're like uh, mentally disturbed or, uh, or you can't like uh, socialize, it's, it's not the same. Uh, people get scared. Uh, they don't approach you. It's an invisible wound. Welcome to Repicture, a podcast of the everyday projects that explores evolving conversations on the ethics and practices of visual storytelling. Those of us who work in the journalism profession are no strangers to trauma. Even those of us who are working far from the front lines. Deadlines, financial uncertainty, imposter syndrome, protest, pandemic, harassment, maintaining relationships, and even success can be traumatic. Today we discuss how we as visual storytellers navigate this challenging field and deal with the uncertainty and mental toll it takes. I am Tasneema Sultan, a visual storyteller from and based in Saudi Arabia. I'm Nyasha Kadandara, a filmmaker based in Nairobi, Kenya from Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. We are your hosts of Repicture. Thanks for joining us. According to reports released by the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma, 80 to 100% of journalists have been exposed to a work-related traumatic event. Witnessing car accidents, fires, disasters, executions, war, and even just looking at violent photos and videos can impact our own well-being. As journalists, we often hear about and witness tragedy and then return to the safety of our homes. It is hard to make sense of it all, and so sometimes we don't try. We go on to autopilot or denial and turn to easy escapes like binging on series or substances. I met Patrick Baz in Beirut, Lebanon, a few years ago, and it was very rare for me to see an Arab photographer that was openly discussing PTSD in a way that many other photographers weren't. So, uh, yeah, I really wanted to to interview him first. Uh, I've been a war photographer for more than 30 years. Uh, and now I'm based in Beirut uh, since 2014, when I stopped uh, covering wars and conflicts around the world. How did you become a photographer? I used to say that uh, I swapped the Kalashnikov for the camera. Uh, I grew up in uh, in Beirut, uh, and uh, I was 12 when the war started. I was running around uh, with gunmen, militiamen, etc. I was fascinated by war. And uh, at the age of 16, 17, I had to undergo military training uh, with local uh, with the local militia. Uh, until uh, I realized that I was incapable of uh, killing anyone or firing at anyone. But I wanted to stay in the action, and uh, the camera was, uh, for me, like uh, the best approach, or the best tool to do it. So I started photography at the age of 17, 18. And uh, my first uh, real war experience was the Israeli invasion in 82. 
where I had to cover, uh, uh, take pictures of uh, occupiers in my own country. It seems that you were, like a lot of photographers start photography and then they move to conflict zones to photograph. And I think with you, it's the opposite. You were born and you live in an area that was full of conflict and then you became a photographer. Yeah, it took me more than 30 years to reject uh, wars and conflicts. I covered uh, all the Gulf Wars since the 80s. Uh, I covered the uh, US invasion of Iraq. I covered uh, Somalia. I went to, of course, I covered uh, first, second, third, and uh, whatever uh, uh, amount of intifadas uh, or the Palestinian uprising since uh, 89 to 2000 plus. I covered uh, Bosnia, uh, I covered uh, Afghanistan, uh, I might have forgotten some. I used to say I have it under my skin, uh, but then I realized uh, after uh, I suffered the PTSD, what we call a post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, that uh, where I realized that I had to stop. I mean, you've said that you've been photographing conflict and war for 30 years. At what point did you realize that you were being triggered? That something was shifting in your psyche, in your emotions, in your lifestyle? Do you remember when that happened? Uh, I think it was a burnout that triggered uh, everything. Uh, it was the conflict in Syria. You know, it's also the uh, accumulation of many things. Uh, a bad experience in Libya in 2012, and uh, where I almost uh, got killed with my team. Like I was supposed to protect my team, and we did something stupid and we almost got uh, killed. And then I had to cover uh, virtually because I was in charge of uh, all the uh, photo department for the MENA region uh, with the AFP and therefore I was in charge of Syria and uh, Syria was the only war in my career that I had to cover virtually. I made it a point uh, in every conflict to be there with my team on the field. There wasn't only kind of uh, moral support but was also logistic support. It was like the boss is here. Uh, the boss is not sitting behind this desk uh, uh, somewhere in Europe. Syria was, it was impossible. Syria was like totally different. I was on Skype all day, uh, most of the time, with people I only met virtually. And uh, I decided one day to go and train them in Turkey. I met some of them visually, physically, and uh, they went back to Syria. And uh, only two of the six I've trained uh, made it out of Syria alive. I had to watch uh, my colleagues being uh, kidnapped on uh, Daesh videos. Um, had to watch their uh, head being chopped 
And uh, at the end I said, sorry guys, but I can't watch those videos anymore. But it was part of our job to verify everything. And, uh, and the burnout triggered everything. And, uh, and I had to stop. It's interesting because I think we usually relate to photographers and here you, as a photographer, became an editor. And I think that's, from what I understand, that's when you actually became more um, emotionally attached to what was happening because you couldn't be there in person, physically, right? Yes, uh, when you wake up at, um, you're waking up at uh, 2 a.m. Uh, by a Skype call from a Syrian photographer who uh, calls you in the middle of the night because that's the only moment where he could get an internet connection to talk to someone. <clears throat> and you have to listen. And uh, you have to, you know, uh, to give like comfort. And, uh, and in the same time, you need comfort and you need someone to listen to you. <laughs> so it's a mixture of everything. And uh, yes. And everybody was surprised that uh, I stopped. And uh, well, I stopped because also I was diagnosed with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. It wasn't only the burnout, the burnout just triggered the post-traumatic stress disorder. With like all the traumas, all, all the traumas you collect during your, uh, your career, or even your life, as I told you, I mean, you don't need to be a war photographer to have a trauma. It can be a car accident, it can be uh, uh, rape, it can be sexual harassment, it can be uh, domestic violence, uh, it can be anything. Uh, any trauma uh, stays, it's like a bug in your uh, computer system. You need to take it out if it stops your computer from functioning. You lose, you lose your memory, you, lose your, you have nightmares, you can't sleep at night. You can't socialize with people. Uh, many issues. Uh, some people would have like different symptoms, different uh, way of reacting, but the symptoms are the same. You know, you have addictions, uh, you become numb. Uh, me, I remember in 2014, when I realized that I had a trauma, I had 2013 or 14, 14 uh, there was the uh, another attack uh, in Gaza, uh, and uh, I was preparing myself to go, and I felt like my feet were uh, stuck in concrete. I couldn't move, and, uh, and then I, I was like, "You have to go," and no, my body was saying no, my brain was saying no. And then I, I was there, and then I started thinking, like, what's going on? You don't sleep at night. Uh, you don't uh, do more than three hours of sleep. You don't wake up in the morning. You spend your time playing video games. How comfortable are you to share the toll that this took on your personal life just your life in general? I'm very comfortable with it. Uh, AFP, my employer, uh, asked me, the, uh, the doctor, with, uh, with the company doctor, uh, 
asked me if I could uh, talk about it publicly uh, because she was interested in uh, breaking the taboo within this uh, industry. Uh, you know, we're like military. Uh, we're supposed to be uh, uh, with no feelings and no, uh, you know, as I said uh, before, like robots, uh, which we're not. It's an invisible wound. You know, and when you walk into a newsroom with a scar on your face on your body, it's sexy. Uh, or when you walk with crutches and uh, people approach you to help, right? But when you're like uh, mentally uh, disturbed or uh, or you can't like uh, socialize or uh, some of my colleagues are alcoholics or uh, drug addicts and uh, uh, in a newsroom, it's it's not the same. Uh, people get scared, uh, they don't approach you, uh, they stay away, or they say, uh, oh, this guy is crazy, don't don't talk to him, or he's not crazy, he's just like, uh, you know, he has post-traumatic stress disorder, and uh, he covered wars for like uh, X amount of number of years, or even one war, or, or women who did not cover war might have suffered from rape or sexual harassment or uh, even men. Uh, it's not about war only. It's about trauma. Uh, we all have traumas and uh, our brain and our body react differently. But when you accum accumulate uh, this amount of uh, traumas, it's like, uh, you know, there is a drop that at the end, uh, you know, make it uh, flood. I mean, you have to you have to get it out somehow. So yes, I talked about it, and uh, it went public. They did a video, and uh, they did an article, and uh, I gave some talks. And I was surprised by the amount of photographers who sent me private messages uh, thanking me for talking about something they didn't know they had. And they realized that it was, you know, PTSD. And uh, others were not very keen to share or to talk about anything. The problem with this is that if you are a freelance photographer, it's very hard to go public. I'm a staff photographer. My salary is still paid. I work for an international organization who helped me uh, cure myself. And the private messages are, I got mainly came from uh, freelance photographers. And, you know, because war, war is a drug. And uh, the more you go to war, the more you need, the more the adrenaline is kicking, the, the lifestyle uh, you have there, the, the, the avatar you're creating. I mean, you are, you become like a kind of a hero, a mixture of Rambo and Indiana Jones. And it's very difficult to kill this, uh, this avatar you built for years. Uh, so it's not easy. And yes, I don't have an issue talking about it because being there, done that, and I moved forward. How long has it been for you? And does it ever end for you to kind of need therapy if you have PTSD? 
there's always something remaining. But the good thing is that you know what it is, you know how to, how you deal with it. Uh, if it comes back, you go and talk about it. Some people need medications, uh, but uh, I never took medications because I, you know, the moment you know what you have, uh, it's 50% of the job. It's a lot of work on yourself. And that's the fantastic part of uh, the end of it is uh, like you get to learn uh, to know your body, uh, to know how your brain functions, to know how you function. Patrick has helped pave the way for other conflict photographers to come forward and face their mental health challenges. But in our industry, there's also everyday wear and tear that exists far from the front lines. I met Tom at the Everyday Africa book launch back in 2017 in Nairobi. And since then, we've crossed paths in Kigali and Abuja, when we always have these DMCs, which I call deep, meaningful conversations about where we're at, what projects we're working on, and more importantly, like, how are we feeling at that time? And we've always talked about mental wellness, taking care of ourselves, how hard things can be. And I found it really refreshing as an African man being able to talk about his feelings, what he's been through. It's not something I was used to. So I wanted to bring him onto the podcast for us to chat. Hello. Mm -hmm. Okay, so ask me that question again. I was saying, tell me how you became a freelance photographer. Like which parts do you want to know? (laughs) (laughs) Which parts are you willing to share with the audience? I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a long story, and I don't know. Let me see how I can summarize it. So, um, when I was homeless uh, in Abuja, which is the capital of Nigeria, there was a, a magazine stand and a post office. So there was just, you know, so many <laughs> books and magazines from subscriptions to the ones that the guys selling at the magazine stand were selling, um, being thrown away. You know, you're homeless, you don't have a job. So you wake up in the morning, all you see around you, it's those newspapers and magazines. I was just fascinated by, you know, the pictures that I was seeing in these magazines and newspapers. But I never, for some reason, I never imagined that that was a professional job, you know, to take those photographs. I just wanted to, I was tired of being not having an interaction with people. So I wanted to start engaging with people. And the only thing that could actually, you know, make that connection happen was the camera. Um, and by the way, that area where I was homeless, there was a post office, there was an event center, there was an art gallery, and there was uh, a printing, um, a, a dark room, a, a photo lab around there. So, which is why... A lot of photography people were passing around there with cameras all the time. So I started asking some people, can I touch your camera? Can I press the shutter sometimes when they have a film? Because it was during the time of analog. Uh, they won't let me press the shutter because, you know, the film was expensive. You only have 36 exposure. And then for some people, they were curious. They were like, oh, let me see what this guy can do with my camera. Let me see what shot he can take with my camera. 
you know. So that was just how this was happening. All this interaction was happening, and then my interest continued to grow and grow and grow. And I was lucky to meet uh, someone in the same process that befriended me, or I befriended, I befriended them, and they gifted me a professional camera. And I did my first professional job in 2008, and then the rest is history. It's such an um, inspiring story, Tom, like the journey um, to where you've become and looking at 2008 and now, like it's 2021, it's over a decade in the industry. A lot has happened and, you know, just as you asked me that questions, I have goosebumps and, you know, I shivered because it's a lot that has happened that... Sometimes it feels like it's not real, it's not true. I'm constantly feeling like sometimes I'm I'm in denial of my own experience of what is happening, that this is not true. Can you elaborate when you say like you've been in denial? Like give me an example. Like it's either I'm working on my big assignment, like one of my biggest assignments and I'm feeling like, How did I get here? Feeling like I'm a fraud. I don't deserve this, I shouldn't be doing this, like you know, to either, like, I have just covered, like, an in, a very difficult, traumatic story that is causing me sleepless night. It's causing me, yeah, sleepless, a sleepless night. Um, um, what do you call it? Panic attacks. Um, mm. Yeah, so it's a combination of, you know, everything. It's just overwhelming with the experience that's happened over the years as a freelancer. Definitely. Um, I'd love to unpack that more. Um, first, if you can talk a little bit about the, like you said, when you feel like a fraud, the imposter syndrome, how have you been able to overcome that? And when do you get those feelings? I started becoming a bit withdrawn sometimes. Um, I started questioning a lot. I became very... I started questioning a lot about my work, what I was doing and everything and and you know all the success and and all that. So you know there was this big shift that you know I have to see a therapist. And and it was when I saw a therapist that again I had um the name the term imposter syndrome for the first time. And it was because, you know, I I just stopped using even social media. I stopped, like, I stopped taking assignment. I didn't want to take assignment anymore. I wanted to, there was this need for me not to get, I didn't want to be known anymore. I didn't want, um, I just didn't want, um, I wanted everybody to fo- I wanted the world to forget that I exist. I didn't want to become if I didn't want to be a photographer anymore. I mm-hmm. I, I hated what I was doing. And a, a lot of this of course like I would say was coming from a lot of the stories that I was covering. I covered a lot of like, you know, sufferings like people like conflict and like, you know, it made me feel really sad. And I there was this guilt inside of me that I was making good money. And as much as I was trying to help a lot of people with the money that I was making, at the same time, like there was just so much that was happening. 
lot of constant travels. I started feeling lonely, you know, and it was in 2018 that I, for the first time I, I told a friend in D.C. when I was in D.C. in the States that um, I'm lonely. It took me months and months and months of like being afraid of even admitting that I was lonely. Um, and the reason for that was because a lot of, you know, people around me didn't even understand, you know, why I was behaving in a setting where whether I'm not like responding to messages, it takes me weeks before I respond to messages or like just not wanting to interact with anybody. Why did you stop using social media? People became so concerned about the fact that I don't use social media. I stopped posting photos. I'm not doing anything. It's like, are you alive? Are you okay? And I'm like, no, like, I can't handle a lot of this interaction anymore. I can't handle a lot of these responses anymore. And there was a day that I packed all my hard drives and put them in a in a plastic bag and like and went on a boat to go to a beach and and had asked this boat guy to take me further into where he goes fishing, where people go fishing. So it's kind of like going in the middle of the ocean. What I wanted to do was to just throw away all my hard drives, you know, completely. I wanted to just get rid of anything, you know. And, and did you? Sorry? Did you? I, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. You changed your mind. I I changed my mind. I was, I was crying and I was like so worried. I was thinking that so much was going through my mind. And I'm like, so many people are dependent on me. You know, this is how I make money. Like I have inspired so many people. People, a lot of people that have become photographers because of me. And I'm like, I, there was this feeling of I'm taking away something that more people will need. Mm-hmm. I, there was this guilt. I was feeling guilty, you know. Um, and then, you know, I didn't end up doing, throwing the hard drives away because they, my plan was to get to the where the waves are bad, like where the deep sea and just open the hard drive, I mean, open the, um, the bag and just throw all the hard drive in the ocean. Um... But again, of course, I was going to litter the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe Mother Nature was like, hell no, you ain't going to litter. <laughs> the universe was like, hey, no, the, the ocean has already been suffering, man. Like, you can't be contributing to this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so there was a change of mind. Um, and so during that time, like, Nyansha, like, I couldn't even look at the camera. Like I could even when I see a camera, I was trying to avoid even seeing anybody with a camera. You know, I hid my camera away, all my cameras away. So even the few assignments that were coming, I would not do them. I would just, um, you know, push them onto other photographers. In fact, I I could not like I felt like disconnecting from the entire photography community. But unfortunately. I have made friends, like a lot of the people in my life are people that I've met through photography. So it was it was almost like I cannot avoid it. So I felt choked all the time. How did things change? I mean, things have haven't changed completely. You know, I'm still like walking through it, you know. Um, but it's been 
one hell of a journey like since 2018 to to now you know um but i'm yeah. i'm getting better but 20 some part of 2019 and 2020 was the worst how do you feel when you um like even just talking about it now how do how do you feel when you talk about this time this like very difficult time when you think about that day when you wanted to throw all the hard drives away i'm having a headache right now like when i think about this thing it's it's um it's painful you know it also makes me you know i've the more i've also met a lot of um people who are going through similar experience like me mm-hmm. and it makes me you know just uh, think a lot like I worry so much about other people who are going through this thing because this is something that no this is something that no one should wish on another human being to to experience this thing and you know the the funny thing is like you know as a photographer like, you you travel like people think people are fascinated by what you do like constant travel one moment like you are with you are hanging out with like CEOs business people fancy people celebrities one moment you are like in a conflict area and, you know, and so you are taking people into a world that a lot of people gen- normally would not go. So they are fascinated by all these experiences and they think that's amazing. You should be having fun. Like, but, you know, unfortunately, uh, it's it's not a reality. And so it's hard to even explain to people that this is what you're going through. So you kind of like bottle all these things within you and you keep it within you, you can't, you're not saying anything, you know, because you're basically trying to put up a show. You're trying to please people in a way you're just pleasing people. You, we, we, sometimes you, we, we lie to ourselves, we, we say, you know, I don't care what other people think, but after what I've experienced, I, I think I'm kind of convinced, and I think this is my opinion, that it's all a lie when we say we're putting things out there and we don't care what anybody thinks and all that. That's not true. Mm-hmm. You know, and as a freelancer, you know, there's there's no stability. You have no stability. You know, there's no financial stability. So, because if you you're constantly working, because if you don't take a job, you don't know when the next job is going to come. So it's hard right. to even say no to jobs. So, I never even went on holidays until like, you know, in the last few years, I started going on holidays. But by then, you know, this thing has eating me and has like has drained all the has affected me mentally has really messed me up mentally completely and i i i i have to like you know repair myself so i'm now i'm trying to repair myself in a healthy way it's not easy you know it's a lot of loneliness you know like this industry is very very lonely you know um you know, I dread hotel rooms. I'm scared of hotel rooms sometimes, you know, because I'm away so much away from home that I don't even know. I have no concept of where home is, you know. I'm talking to you right now in my room here, but I'm not attached to anything here in my room here. It's it's very temporary to me. I still feel like I'm in a hotel room, like, and, but this is what we sign up for. It's hard to also make friends, you know. It's also even hard to even have a relationship, to even have a romantic relationship to date. You meet someone and they're fascinated, they're fascinated by what you do. Oh, my God, I love that you travel. You're so interesting and all that. They're interested in dating you. You ask them out. They say, yes, yes, yes. You, you know, and, you know, at, and then um, 
they're even they're even excited to ask you when is your next job and you're like yeah next week or so and then when they haven't seen you for three months they're like this is not working out <laughs> you know i've had two girls two girls broke up with me while i was on assignment in a conflict area and this this girl just messaged me and say it's over like i can't do this anymore like i have only seen you in the last three months only twice I'm like, please, babe, like, understand, like, I'm, I'm going to try. And I know deep down inside of my head that that's a lie because, uh, <laughs> because if you don't make money again, you're broke, then yeah, nobody yeah. wants you. And that's you. stressful. And if you're stressed, then yeah. you're not going to be an ideal partner anyway. Exactly. Like, I'm stressed about looking for money. Exactly. You know, you got bills to pay. How do you go on those holidays that you guys want to go to? How do you go on to those days to go to restaurants and eat? How do you, you know, treat each other nicely if you don't make all this money? So I'm in my 30s, you know, I'm, I'm, I just turned 36, you know. Like there's this desire in me to settle down, like, you know, have a family, you know, or have a partner and all that kind of stuff. But, you know... There's also like I don't know being an adult is so hard and being a, like <laughs> I hear you Tom it's just it's it's rough actually and this industry I don't know it's it's hard to take care of yourself because it's like you're saying there's that rat race so there's so many traps that you can fall into in terms of not um, taking care of yourself. I've been fortunate enough to work with some clients that also understand, you know, mental health, especially in this industry that, you know, I've had moments of where basically I had a panic attack on why out shooting and the client was just so very understandable. And and I think in, in this industry, I think we need to we need to be radical about it because it's it's killing a lot of, you know, our colleagues. It's been suicidal. People have taken their life. People have breakdown and some people have never been able to recover to get back again, you know. And so this and this is one of the reasons why, you know, I I I was exci- I, not excited, but, you know, like I was happy. I mean, to to be to take part of this, you know, be part of this have podcast, this conversation. this conversation, because it's really important. And our client, the people that we're working for have to understand that we are humans. We are not just cameras we're not machines like the cameras we're not mechanisms even mm-hmm. even if we are we break down even machines cameras break down for for christ's sake so i think this we need to have more of this conversation we need to you know be very vocal about it because it's destroying a lot of us it's destroying a lot of us you know yeah thank you so much i mean this is you've been so open and candid i didn't even have to ask many questions for us to to talk about this and I really appreciate you sharing your experiences there's no shame in talking about like you know I've called a, I've called a couple of friends when I was having panic attacks when you know I was having anxiety attack you know and I have even bonded more closely with some of those friends you know we need to be vulnerable I think yeah vulnerability is something that we need to embrace you know, we need to embrace vulnerability. I know it's not an easy thing. It's 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 uh, it can be difficult to have vulnerability, but we should more, make more effort to you know to embrace that. 
Remember that report from the DART sensor I mentioned earlier? According to it, we journalists are also quite resilient. Considering our high levels of exposure to traumatic events, there are still relatively low rates of PTSD among us. So that's good news. I definitely see resilience coming through in both Patrick and Tom's stories. And I think conversations like the one we're having now can be part of building that resilience that we need. Well, do we think the solution is trying to forget or maybe it's it's more acknowledging what you've experienced and processing it so the experience lives with you but not in a toxic way? That's a lot of therapy. And none of yeah. these photographers are paid therapy by any of their publications. I know, this should be part of the rate. Like, call people and tell them... This is my day rate plus. Yeah, and I, I also wonder what PTSD means. Like in, in this scenario, we had Patrick and we had Tom to speak about this. But even there are a lot of PTSD triggers that are not part of the conflict zone world. Suddenly, with the the death of the journalist, the Saudi journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, a lot of the Western um, publications stopped hiring me and they stopped really kind of addressing any of the changes that were happening in Saudi and it was all about one negative story that happened which of course is a big story but then it brings me back to like well maybe they only hired me because they didn't have any other options maybe my work isn't good maybe you know and still the rest of the Saudi population the youth especially they deserve to be to have their stories shared it it can't just end because one political situation happened so then what about everyone else what about me what about my you know bread and butter I'm not hired again so then I start getting all those questions in my head maybe it's not I'm not good that's why I'm not hired elsewhere outside of Saudi no one's ever going to think of me as other than Saudi so maybe I need to photograph weddings and then COVID happened so then no weddings so I did as, as a freelancer there is a lot of issues and that of course I had to deal with and I had to save money to pay for a therapist and I'm now taking workshop in mindfulness, meditation. <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to let go of a lot of anger that I have with, you know, about myself, a lot of the insecurities that I have about myself. And I also understand that I'm still privileged to be in a safe country, to not have any conflict zones around me, to be in a safe family. Um, so I feel guilt you know, I'm better off than a lot of my other friends and a lot of my other um, colleagues. And I I don't know. I think, like you said, I have to always take a step back and reevaluate. Well, now I'm here. What else can I do? And how can I care about everyone else if I'm not caring about my own sanity and my own emotions? Definitely, I feel the frustrations. I mean, this period has been also just so weird with the ups and downs um I have I think I I feel burnt out right now um and I constantly I think feel like this more and more because I'm like why do I have a headache and why am I so irritable and why do I not want to do this thing um and why am I like pressed for cash and why am I stressed out all the time um and it's such a hard balance. I think generally working in a cre- the creative industry is difficult because 
our work is constantly being judged. So, you know, Tazim, when you talk about, you know, is my work good enough? You're constantly having that sort of like pressure where they choose someone else to work with or you create something and it doesn't have the the reaction that you anticipated. So the immediate thing is to be like, oh, it must have been me and how I created it. So you're dealing with that. Then you're figuring out like, okay, there's the work that you get to pay for your bills and stuff. And then there's the work that you're trying to do that you're really passionate about. And I think a lot of creatives across the board find that these things sometimes feel like they're mutually exclusive. Like you can't get paid to make passionate work. And it's only when the work is done that people are going to be like, oh, that's amazing. Great. Maybe here's some prize money or, you know, maybe here pay back the debt that you've incurred. I also think as women of color, we're also frustrated because a lot of the gatekeepers are in the West, they're in the global North, and we're trying to prove ourselves to them and, you know, or they hire you for stuff, but they don't necessarily trust you. You know, I've been asked during the pandemic to film things and someone's directing remotely. And I find it really condescending to be like, do you not think I can ask a question? Um, I'm a direct and storyteller in my own right. You're dealing with so much and I don't even have solutions at this point for for what I've experienced or this kind of craziness. I just know I've learned to be more self-aware. So I'm, I've learned to be like, I am burnt out. Maybe I should switch off my phone and go to bed early. Um, it does not solve any of my problems by far, but it's like a little thing that I can do for myself. I'm like, okay, I should probably go for a run. It's good speaking to people like Tom and Patrick and other friends that we have that are very open about PTSD because I think we all, although the statistics say that we're not many people, I do think that it's because we're not open about it. We mm, we have a barrier. I, I don't want to show people that I am grieving, that I'm angry, that I'm upset because I might not be hired. I don't want to show people that right. I'm that I have lots of rage issues because no one will want to talk to me. So I'll smile and I'll pick myself up and pretend that I'm okay. And I it's like even therapy is still something that's very novel in the Arab world for instance or at least in Saudi with a lot of my, you know, family members. So if we're not even speaking to therapists, how do we know what PTSD is? Just a few weeks ago, I spoke to my tutor slash mentor who's teaching me how to be mindful. And I'm like, I'm still angry when I sit and I want to meditate. I get more frustrated that I have to do this for five to 10 minutes. And I remember her reply was, it's when nothing bothers you, when you don't feel like you're, you can ignore and just ignore that itch in your arm and ignore that little, you know, dust or maybe it's it's an insect or whatever it is that's on your nose because you don't care because you are just so busy reading and scanning your body that's when nothing in the outside world will affect you that when someone says something hurtful or when you see something an imagery that's really triggering and you don't care it's because you've worked so much on your inner self that the outer thing is just it's it's so strong so that's hopefully by the next meeting in the next episode, I can walk you through it. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick and Tom, for speaking with us today. And to you, our listeners, for joining us. 
please visit repicture.org to find links to Patrick and Tom's work and learn more about the Everyday Projects. By the way, we would love to hear from you. We are accepting suggestions for future conversations, money for therapy, ideas, anything. Email us at repicture at everydayprojects.org. Okay, not anything, just good ideas only. We are a brand new podcast and we would love your help. Tell your editors, your great-grandmothers, your high school professors, and even if you don't have a high school professor, you all have exes, ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, about how awesome Repicture is. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. The Everyday Project is supported in part by Open Society Foundation's Culture and Arts, Code for Africa, Africa No Filter, and Adobe. This episode of Repicture was produced by Tasneem Al Sultan, Eli Gardner, and me, Nyasha Kadandara, with the support of our team at the Everyday Projects: Austin Merrill, Peter DeCampo, Rebecca Gibeon, Washeran Jaggi, John Edwin Mason, and Danielle Viasana. With music by Blue Dot Sessions and original theme by Hassan Hujeri.